You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, well, good morning, Creekside. Wow, look at your friendliness. This is powerful gregariousness going on in this room. Good morning, Creekside. Good to see all of you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If it's your first time worshiping with us, thank you. We're just so glad that you joined us this morning. Few announcements before we jump in. Uh, First of all, we'll just really encourage you to check out Regen, uh, which we just promoted. We are starting this Wednesday, February 7th, here at church. And uh, the hardest step to take is the first, if you're struggling. In fact, the hardest step is just to go out and look at that sign-up table out there, but would really encourage you, just take that step. Just get more information and then, and then see what God does. It's just an amazing place to find the healing of Jesus. So I encourage you to check that out. Uh, next, if you are a voting member and you know who you are, we have one meeting a year. One meeting, and it happens today, okay? So one meeting right after this service. It's super easy. All you do is not leave. Okay, not leave, and then we vote on corporate officers, we vote on our annual budget, vote on our big pastoral transition as well with my dad phasing into a new role and Kyle Driggers phasing into his role. So a lot to cover, encourage you to hang out. Uh, Last, we wanna give a shout out to Troop 503 because it is Scout Sunday and we have Troop 503, they're all back there. If you wanna stand up, thank you so much. You can give them a hand. Thank you, Troop 503. It is Scout Sunday today, and they graciously provide our hospitality. Thank you for that. They meet here every Monday night. Uh, Bob and the team have just been so faithful over the years. You can talk to them if you want more information about Scouts here, the trip that meets here. Thank you guys so much for doing that. Really appreciate it. All right, very excited. New series. Jumping into Luke. You ready? It's going to be good. Let's pray as we go to God's Word. So... Jesus, we praise you because you made it your mission to seek and save the lost. Uh, Lord, we were lost and uh, you found us so that we could find you. Thank you for coming to save us. Uh, Lord, you say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So I pray we would humble ourselves before your word and that you would teach us, Lord, about the sure hope we have in you. Ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I no longer watch late night television uh, because I have small children and I love sleep. I mean, I always loved sleep, but now I love sleep. Uh, But recently I saw a clip, very interesting clip of a late night discussion between Stephen Colbert and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And as you may know, Colbert is well-known for his belief in God, and Tyson is well-known for his non-belief in God. But it was interesting because they were having a conversation about faith. And Tyson said, you know, in my experience, when I talk to believers, they have a tendency to reject evidence. And if I give them evidence, they'll say, no, 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 I have my faith, and they almost want to stifle evidence so they can keep their faith. And so he asks Colbert, he says, what do you do with that urge to reject evidence in favor of faith? And Colbert said, you know, honestly, I don't think my faith is related to evidence. Faith comes from a different place. My faith approaches a mystery. It's about a need for gratitude. Now, here's what's interesting about that exchange. 
These men probably disagree about a lot of things. You've got someone who believes in God, someone who does not believe in God, and yet when it comes to the relationship between faith and evidence, they agree. Both of them think you've got faith over here, you've got facts over here, and never the twain shall meet. They're different things. Now, if you notice that, you will begin to see that everywhere in our culture. It's something that's been called the fact-value distinction, and it's everywhere. It's this idea that if you want facts about reality, where do you look? Science. Hard sciences, history, you need these things to get data and reliable information, but then if you need values, if you need morality, if you need meaning in life, where do you go? Religion. And so you have facts over here, you have faith over here, and they sort of operate as two entirely different things. And if that's true, then the Christian faith is kind of shut off from facts. Now, here's the question to wrestle with this morning. Not just is the distinction valid, but is that even workable in reality? Is it possible to have a sure faith, a confident faith, if it's completely untethered from, disconnected from, facts? Well, this morning we begin a study of Luke's gospel, and I love this, he's going to answer that question in the introduction. Let's look at how Luke begins his gospel. He says this, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So as we jump into Luke's gospel here, let's talk a little bit about Luke. Luke's an interesting guy. Luke was one of Paul's close companions. In fact, Luke traveled with Paul on several of his missionary journeys. It appears that Paul had a deep affection for Luke. And Luke had a big, a deep loyalty to Paul. You know, it's interesting if you read in 2 Timothy, as Paul is awaiting his execution in Rome at the very end of his life, he says, everyone has deserted me, but one person is with me. You know who it was? Luke. So so Luke had a great loyalty to Paul. Paul loved Luke, and we know that Luke was a physician. He's an educated man. We know that in Colossians that he was a doctor. That's why we call him Dr. Luke. He's a highly educated man. You can see that in the language he uses in this sort of historical methodology that he employs. Now, we don't know whether Luke was a Gentile or a Jew. There's a big debate, which one was he? But here's what's clear as you read through Luke. Luke knows his Old Testament really well. He's very familiar with the Old Testament world, and he's also very familiar with the Greco-Roman world and its customs and its cultures. And so he's the perfect candidate to do this. He's going to show how God's story in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, and then how that story continues to change the world as it advances into the Greco-Roman world. That's what Luke is, is gonna do. So that's Luke, he's the author, and he writes to a man named Theophilus means lover of God or loved by God. Who's that? We have no idea. Uh, He's not mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. We don't know exactly who he was, but he's clearly a person of stature. Notice Luke calls him most excellent. Most excellent Theophilus. That's a term you use for someone who's a big deal. High status, 
probably a governing official of some kind. In Acts 24, Paul refers to the Roman governor Felix as most excellent Felix. Acts 26, Paul addresses the Roman governor Festus by the same title. So Theophilus is a man of high status, maybe a man of public office, and he's probably the patron of this work. In the ancient world, it was customary for a writer to acknowledge the one who'd funded this. So it appears that Theophilus paid Luke to write this work. Here's the question, why? Why would Theophilus fund this huge work of Christian history? Well, Luke gives us a hint in verse four. What's Luke's purpose in writing? He says he writes that you, Theophilus, may have what? Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That word certainty means security. Theophilus needed a firmer foundation for his faith. He was probably a Christian. It says that he was taught things, taught the basics of the Christian faith. So he's aware of what Christians believe, but he feels a little shaky. It seems that this is what's going on. Theophilus is saying, I know what Christians believe, but now I need to know why we believe it. Why is that the case? And if you're a Christian, I hope that's encouraging to you. It's normal, even if you've been walking with Jesus, sometimes your faith feels a little, eh. I, I know that's what we believe, but why do we believe it? It's okay to feel that. The question is, what do you do with that feeling? Do you just let it fester? Or do you go find further confirmation? Well, what does Theophilus do? He pays Luke to write this massive Christian history so he knows why he believes what he believes. Theophilus is feeling shaky. Why would he feel shaky about the Christian faith? Why does he feel a little bit uncertain? Well, we don't know exactly, but here's the tension that exists in the early church. And I think it explains the shakiness. Let's just imagine Luke has written about 30 or 40 years after the time of Jesus. At this point in history, when Luke writes, the church is this tiny, marginalized sect of Judaism. That's how it's viewed, this little offshoot of Judaism. And what do the Christians proclaim? They proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king of the Old Testament, which means he's the king of who? The Jews. He's the, the king the Jews have been waited for. And so the Christians go out and they preach this message to the Jews, but the Jews, did they receive it? No, they reject it. Very few of the Jews receive the message. In fact, the Jewish elites, the upper ruling classes, they hate the message and they hate Christians and they begin persecuting the early church. So you have just apathy among many Jews, hostility from elite Jews. But here's what's interesting. They go out preaching this very Jewish message and who responds? Not Jews, but Gentiles. And now fast forward, right? This is 40 years after the time of Jesus, somewhere in that area. You have Gentiles flocking into the church. Gentiles responding to this very Jewish message. And the Gentiles who are responding are marginalized people. The poor are coming into the church. Women are coming into the church. Slaves are coming into the church. And the gospel is exploding on the margins, but it's rejected by the people it's for. Is that troubling? Can you understand how Theophilus would view that as troubling? This is a very Jewish message that the Jews don't believe. The natural question is, is this the plan? It was this God's plan from the beginning. How does any of this make sense? Luke is gonna say, here's why this makes sense. In fact, everything is going according to plan. 
Now, we might not struggle with Theophilus's tension, but, but the reality is all of us are going to feel a tension in the Christian faith. We're gonna grapple with the Christian faith. We're gonna need assurance. We're gonna say, you know, why do people today seem so interest, disinterested in Christianity? Why do my views increasingly seem to be in the minority? Why should I believe this at all? Luke gives us reasons to believe. And here is Luke's thesis in his prologue. Here's why you believe in Christianity. First, because the Christian faith is founded in what? History. That this isn't a fable or a myth, but it's rooted in fact. Second, this faith that's rooted in history is ultimately the fulfillment of God's story. And here's the beautiful thing Luke does. He connects God's story in the Old Testament to Jesus' story, to the story of the early church and its expansion. And he says, all of this is a story rooted in history and it's one story of God fulfilling his promises and now we're a part of it. And ultimately Luke says, that's why you believe in Christianity because you're believing in things that happened and the things that happened make sense of this big story God's always been telling. So for Luke, this whole idea of the fact-faith distinction, he would have no idea what you're talking about. Because ultimately the faith is rooted in fact and things that happened. So two points, you ready? First, historical foundation. Luke assumes that he is talking about things that have happened that can be investigated. And he says, because of that, it should give Theophilus assurance. Have you never needed assurance that things will be okay? Where do you go for assurance? Where do you look for it? Uh, let, me, let, me, let me give you an example. So when I was 15... I got diagnosed with cancer, but here's the thing, I was misdiagnosed. Now, I didn't know I was misdiagnosed. In fact, I had to wait a few months to learn that it was a misdiagnosis. I had a bone tumor and it turned out to be benign, but at first they thought it was malignant. So I'm 15, I'm sitting in the doctor's office. He says, Jeff, bad news, cancer, right? Now, do you want assurance in that moment? What's the assurance you're looking for? What is it? <laughs> Imagine this. Imagine the doctor said, Jeff, you got cancer, but I've got good news. Let me tell you the good news. Have you ever heard a story called The Little Engine That Could? <laughs> now, I bet you're familiar with it, but, but hear me out. It, that story should inspire you to deal with that. That, that doctor should be fired, right? That's the worst bedside manner because in that moment, the assurance you want is not some moral tale about enduring hard times or that it's always darkest before the dawn. The assurance you want is the prognosis. I've heard the diagnosis. Give me the prognosis. Is it treatable? And by the way, give me a percentage. I want survival rate, right? 10%, 20%, that's assurance. In reality, we look for assurance in things that are true and things that have a basis in what reality? Christianity is not a well-conceived fairy tale. That doesn't give you assurance. What does Luke say our assurance is in? The fact that these things are not fables, but are grounded in historical facts. Three things he says about the Christian faith here. The first thing he says is this, that it is publicly accessible. 
inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Here's what Luke is saying. The things I'm writing about, other people have written about them. In fact, the information, it's out there. As Paul says in Acts, <laughs> these things didn't happen in a corner. People knew about Jesus, that he walked and talked and that he had eyewitnesses. This was stuff that you could look into. It was public knowledge at the time. And Luke says, I'm not the first one to compile a narrative. Other people have already attempted to do the kind of thing I'm doing, which tells me that at least a few of the gospels, I mean, probably Mark was already written at this time and people are aware of it. This is a public story. It's a publicly accessible message. Second, it's built on the testimony of what? Eyewitnesses. He says these stories that have been compiled, they wrote just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke says this, that these narratives that Christians are writing, they conform to a standard. What standard did they conform to? What eyewitnesses said about who? Jesus. In other words, these, these early Christian writers, they're not just coming up with their own stories. They're not just using their imaginations to write fables about Jesus. What they say had to align with what the original disciples saw. What they saw. And Luke says that the things they saw have been handed down to us. That's a technical term for the transmission of tradition. These things were carefully compiled and they're being passed down from eyewitnesses. And I love what Luke says here. The people who reported this, they were eyewitnesses and then they became what? Ministers of the word. What Luke is talking about there is really the shift from Luke to Acts, right? In Luke, what do you have? Eyewitnesses. Disciples, people who see what Jesus did. And then in Acts, what do they become? Ministers of the word. But, but what is the message of the early church? What is the word? Is it some clever religious preaching? No, Peter says that we cannot but speak of what we have, what? Seen and heard. The early disciples, they weren't creating a message. They just said, hey, listen, we saw Jesus and we walked around with Jesus and then we saw them kill Jesus and then we saw Jesus get raised, so we think God raised him, and that's the message. That was the message. It was testimony. These people are just recounting what they have witnessed. That was the early Christian message. You know, some people say, I could never believe that someone actually rose from the dead. And I understand that sentiment. It's hard to believe. But I invite you to consider that Jesus' first followers felt the exact same way. As you read through the gospels, it's clear they didn't blindly follow Jesus. And you know, you know, in fact, you know what the common denominator is? Everyone doubts Jesus. Everybody. John the Baptist, right? Jesus hype man. Guy who proclaims Jesus to everyone. He has doubts. He gets thrown in prison and he doubts that Jesus is the Messiah. He's like, Jesus, is this the plan? I don't know. I'm in prison, right? Jesus' family doubts him. At one point in Mark 3, Mary and the siblings of Jesus, they come to do a citizen's arrest on Jesus because they think he's crazy. Those closest to Jesus doubt Jesus. Do the disciples doubt Jesus? Constantly doubting Jesus. They doubt Jesus and doubt Jesus. And then they kill Jesus and they're like, oh, this is the end. And then Jesus rises from the dead and the women come and they're like, nope, don't believe it. And then Jesus appears to some of them and they're still like, nope, don't believe it. And then Thomas is like, I got to touch him. 
I gotta touch him. And then he does. And then Jesus appears to them for 40 days. And then after 40 days, he ascends to heaven. And right before he ascends, do you know what it says in Matthew 28? I love this. After 40 days with him, it says, some worshiped Jesus and some doubted. Right? I, can you imagine that scene before Jesus is gonna go to heaven? You got people like, he's the Lord. And then you got this guy over here, right? Probably Thomas, like, eh. There's gotta be another explanation, I don't know, right? Like, here's the point. Here's the point. The, the disciples weren't wishful thinkers who just sort of believed this thing into existence in spite of the evidence. No, if you look at the history, they were perpetual doubters who just got overwhelmed by the evidence to the contrary until they had to say, we cannot help but speak of what we have what seen and heard. That's the point. It's a publicly accessible story. It's based on eyewitness testimonies. Richard Bauckham did a massive study of the New Testament and he said that at multiple points, it bears the marks of eyewitness accounts. This is people who saw Jesus talking about Jesus. So it's publicly accessible. It's eyewitness testimony. Third, because of these things, Luke says, it is open to historical investigation. Luke says, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time. Do you know what Luke is saying there? He's saying, Theophilus, I've done my own investigating. The eyewitnesses are still alive. I've gone back and interviewed them. It's clear, Luke interviewed the original 12, right? The 11. He also interviewed a number of women who had been with Jesus. We, we meet them in Luke 8 and then again in Luke 24. Jesus went to other people who had been with Jesus and interviewed them and compiled all of this information. And Luke himself, though he wasn't a first generation witness to Jesus, who did he hang out with all the time? Paul. And he got to see God work miraculously through Paul's ministry. Luke is chapter one of the work, Acts is chapter two. And as you get into Acts, this interesting thing happens in Acts 16, Luke inserts himself into the narrative of his story. And all of a sudden you've got Luke traveling around with Paul, doing things with Paul. So what's the point? Luke is saying this, I have looked meticulously into this story. I've talked to the people who were there. I've interviewed them. I've compiled this. I've given you a careful account. Why go through such painstaking detail? Because the Christian faith is based on things that happened. In history, they can be investigated. That's the point, and I hope that's an encouragement to you. Christian faith isn't wishful thinking about a fable, it's a historical claim. The claim is that God has acted in history to fix history and to fix the world. And if that's the Christian claim, right? The Christian message isn't the little engine that could, right? It's not, uh, you know, just try harder in life. It's always darkest before the dawn. No, the claim is God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the claim and it's something that can be investigated. I hope that's an encouragement to you because it means we can make the investigation Luke made and come up with reasons for ourselves as to why these things happened. And if they happened, they changed everything. And you can read story after story, Lee Strobel, J. Warner Wallace, Molly, Molly Worthen, all these secular journalists and historians who when they finally gave the evidence of fair hearing, guess what happened? They came to Luke's conclusion. They had certainty that these things are so. So 
This is history that Luke is talking about. There's no fact-faith dichotomy. The faith is based on facts. Does that make sense? You need facts for assurance. But here's the thing. Facts are necessary, but facts alone are not sufficient for faith. And here's why. It's not enough to believe facts because the minute you hear a fact, what's the next question you ask? What does this mean? What does any of this mean? And to get meaning, do you know what you need? You need a story to make sense of the world. You need a bigger story. Facts alone don't give you meaning in life. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, back when I was in college, there was this thing that was really cool and hip called the new atheism. I don't know if you remember this. I guess the old atheists were polite and the new atheists were angry. Like that was the, that was the new thing. Like the new atheists were mad about Christianity and it was this new group of intellectuals, they're very bright people, public intellectuals, and they were saying, Christianity is not just false, it's bad. That was the big thing. Christianity, religion, it's bad, it's corrosive, it's toxic, and we gotta get rid of this. And we gotta get rid of it to usher in this new age of enlightenment and reason and atheist values and, you know, I thought in college and grad school, like, this is kind of the thing I'm going to be dealing with my whole life, right? New atheism, this is going to be in the ascendance. But here's what's interesting. Fast forward 20 years, and new atheism kind of just piddled out. It ran out of momentum. And in fact, a lot of the people who were involved in it at the beginning are a lot less excited about it now. So what happened? Justin Brierley, uh, he's a Christian who's interviewed a ton of these people, but he just wrote a book about it. And he made a very good point. He said, here was the problem the new atheists ran into. Uh, they were very good at talking about reason and evidence and facts, and they were all agreed on one thing, we need to get rid of Christianity. Here's the problem. They all agreed, let's get rid of Christianity. What's the next question? What do we replace it with? What is this bigger story that gives meaning to life that we should live for and give our lives to? We know we don't like this thing, but what's the thing we should be committed to? And they all disagreed. And some people wanted to be in this political cause, and other people wanted to be in this political cause, but they couldn't agree, and it makes sense that they couldn't agree, because ultimately the atheist story of reality is that there is no story. The story is that life doesn't have a grander purpose, there's no bigger narrative, and most people, Briarly says, find it hard to live that way. You gotta have a bigger meaning. It's very easy to say, let's not live this way. Great, what are we gonna live for? Do you know what? You need a story. And the reality is everyone lives in a story. You don't know it, but you are right now. In terms of the beginning, what's the middle? What's the conflict worth going through? What's the happy ending you're looking for? You're in that story right now. And you use it to make sense of your life. Here's what Luke is saying in his gospel. These facts that I have talked about, the things people have witnessed, they only make sense in light of one story. Whose story is it? God's story and Jesus' story and the story God started telling all the way back in the Old Testament. What does he say? He says he's talking about things that have been accomplished. The literal word there is fulfilled among us. Luke says, I'm gonna write about things that have been fulfilled. What does that mean? Here's what he means. Luke says God made promises a long time ago. God made promises about what he would do to renew the earth. And now in Jesus, we see those promises fulfilled. The promises kept. That's the point. 
This is about God's story and how it makes sense of everything. That's what he's saying. You know, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Why would Luke write a gospel? You kind of ask that at the beginning, right? What does he say? He says, you know, many people have tried this. I'm going to try it too. And Luke clearly is positive about the people who've tried what he's trying. Why would Luke try to write a big story? Here's why. He writes an orderly account. What does that mean? This is the amazing thing Luke does. Luke says, Theophilus, I want to connect God's story in the Old Testament with Jesus' story that we've witnessed with the story you're living in right now, which is the story of what? The early church and its expansion. Remember the question Theophilus is wrestling with? Why are all these Gentiles coming into the church? Why are the Jews rejecting the message? Here's what Luke is saying. If you look at the big story, it all makes sense. If you look at what God promised, if you look at Jesus' life, and then if you look at what happens in the explosion of the early church, it all makes sense. And here is the thing about Acts you need to know. Most important thing for interpreting Acts, you ready for it? Here it is. It's volume one. Acts is part of a bigger book. What's volume two? You got Luke, you got volume two, Acts. Look how Acts starts. In the first book, what's the first book? Luke, oh, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Isn't that interesting? Here's what he's saying. Theophilus, Luke starts, uh, Luke says, Theophilus, Jesus starts working. That's the gospel of Luke. And then Jesus continues working through the church. That's what the book of Acts. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Theophilus, God started working in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills what God is doing and Jesus continues to work even now. And if you understand the big story, what's happening to you makes sense. It makes sense. And this is Luke's unique contribution. Luke is the one New Testament writer who writes this huge history. This is long, okay? Luke's the longest gospel, 19,000 words. Acts is about 18,000 words. Huge history, but it connects for us the Old Testament with what's happening in the early church. And here's what's beautiful. This story Luke is telling is also our story. Acts ends in a really funny way. You ever read the end of Acts? It's really interesting. It ends and Paul is in Rome awaiting trial and we never find out what happens to Paul. Isn't that disappointing? Like, come on. It's like a Netflix series, right? When's the next season gonna come out so we know what happened to Paul? But that's very intentional. Do you know what Luke is saying? He's saying that the story of Acts is still being written. It continues, it just keeps going. And what is that story? The story is this, that God has always had a plan to bless the nations. I tried to, to, to come up with a diagram to explain Acts. And you know from sitting through my sermons, I'm bad with diagrams, right? So this is my best shot, okay, you ready? What does it mean for Luke to give an orderly account? The whole structure of Luke shows that God's plan has always been to reach who? The nations. The least, the lost, the last. And you see that in the way this book is structured. Luke begins, Luke 1, 2, with the birth of Jesus, and Luke situates Jesus' birth in light of Caesar's reign. Do you know what he's saying? This birth of Jesus, it has global implications. 
It has implications for Rome and the entire world. And then you see this narrowing, right? It starts in the context of the nations and then Jesus starts serving in Galilee. And you know where it's headed. It's headed for Jerusalem, right? And so Jesus ministers in Galilee among the outcasts and then he's moving toward Jerusalem. Chapter nine, there's this key pivot point where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And then chapters nine through 19 of Luke, Jesus is just marching toward his death in Jerusalem. And he's marching and he's getting closer. And then finally you get to Jerusalem and Jesus is rejected by who? The elites. And he dies a lowly, horrible death. And then he rises from the dead. And then what happens in Acts? It all starts in Jerusalem, right? But Jesus says it's not gonna stay in Jerusalem because this has what global implications like Luke 1 and 10 said. So now it goes from Judea to Samaria and further and then Cornelius the Gentile gets saved and then more Gentiles get saved and then the gospel goes into Europe and the gospel goes further and it ends where? In Rome, the capital of the world. You see that? Point, just, just remember bow tie. Then you know Acts, right? There you go, the bow tie. Now you know what it's all about. Because the point is this, God's plan has always been for the nations. God's plan was always gonna be fulfilled by someone who was rejected by the elites. And God's plan has always been to reach through the Jewish Messiah, the least and the last and the lost, which is why, you know who Luke focuses on again and again and again? The people that the Jews did not expect. The people that we would expect to reject Jesus, they just keep coming to Jesus the most lowly, the most marginalized, the most capped out, the most lost, those are the people that God is trying to reach. Why is that? You know, we're titling the series Savior of the Lowly. Why is Luke so concerned about the lowly? Why is Jesus so concerned about the lowly and the have-nots? Here's why. God's mission always pushes toward the margin to save the poor and lowly. Do you know why? Because he wants to humble the proud and lofty the elites of the world, the most excellence of the world, the people with the wealth, the haves, when they see God working there, do you know what it does? It humbles them. It says, you know what? Maybe I don't have God's kingdom figured out. Maybe I am not living in God's blessing. Maybe God is moving somewhere else. In fact, what Jesus says throughout Luke is that a day is coming and it's a day of reversal. It's a day of judgment where the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a day when the halves of the world get humbled and realize that because they didn't have Jesus, they've missed everything. And the have-nots of the world are exalted in Jesus because they had Jesus and they have everything. And here's what Luke is saying. Listen up, Theophilus. You might be an elite in this world. You might have difficulty with the fact that Christianity is despised and rejected, but guess what? A day is coming when the lowly get exalted and the exalted get put low. So humble yourself now and minister to the lowly and the lost because that's where God's kingdom is moving. And on the last day, it will be shown who was in the right. That's where the story is going. That's the story we should give our lives to as well. Why do we reorient our lives around Jesus' mission? Even though it means that we must go to the least and the lost and the last and humble ourselves because that's the true story of the world. That's it. And on the day of judgment, that will be clear to everyone. To everyone, that's the point. And here's where I'll end. The point of Luke is that Jesus is the savior to the lowly. Here's what that means. To see your need for a savior, you've got to get low. You have to humble yourself. The only people who think they need a savior are people who know they're lost. 
If you don't think you're lost, if you're exalted in your own mind, you might like the idea of Jesus as your life coach or your example or a good religious teacher, which is not what he is. <laughs> but the idea that he's your Lord and Savior, you will reject. You have to get low to be exalted, Jesus says. The humble will be exalted. The exalted will inevitably get humbled in this life and believe me, in the life to come. That's the promise. And so I would encourage you, if you're investigating Jesus, this is not a moral fable that you're looking into. Our claim is that God has acted in history to fix the world. Here's the thing though, you need to be fixed. There is something wrong with you. I'm the problem. I need to be saved to participate in Jesus' mission. And if you know that your own story isn't working, that you're living it, that you know you can't even live up to your own standards, much less God's, that you know there is something deeply defunct and broken in you, guess what? I got good news. Jesus is a savior to the lowly. But until you get low and see your need, you'll never want Jesus as your savior. All right, let's pray. So thank you, Jesus, that you will make all things new and make all things right. Uh, and Jesus, that you are the savior of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the low. And Jesus, there is only one way to approach you and that is to get low. So Lord, would you humble us and show us that ultimately what we need is not better tips or advice. Lord, we don't need better coaching or better discipline. We don't need a better policy or program. We need a savior, Jesus, who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves, which is take our judgment and die so we don't have to and rise to deliver us from the power of sin and death. And, and so would we humble ourselves before you that we might be exalted by you at the proper time. I ask it in your name, Jesus, amen.